Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. It's a really complicated subject. I think some of the black soldiers were just fighting because it was just something that they felt they should do, just like their, their white counterparts. I mean, uh, they were in it from the first, and, they, and they, were, they were in it to the last. That's author John Reese, and he's talking about his new book on African-American soldiers serving in the Continental Army. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode was brought to you by Casemate, publishers of The Quaker and the Gamecock, Nathaniel Green, Thomas Sumter, and The Revolutionary War for the South by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is author John Reese, talking about his new book, They Were Good Soldiers. African-American serving in the Continental Army, 1775 to 1783, from Helion. Our guest today is going to talk about some of the, I think, unheralded members of the Continental Experience, but also, as you'll see in the interview when you listen, uh, people who played roles in, in all sorts of regiments, from Uh, many states, mostly in the North, uh, across the board. I think there's an idea, and this largely probably comes from the experience of the Union Army in the Civil War, of segregated army units, segregated forces between black and white. And as John Reese will say moving forward, uh, that wasn't the case at all in the revolutionary experience. Uh, Soldiers often serve side-by-side with men of different races, ethnicities, and creeds. It's a wonderful interview. I hope you enjoy it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy our discussion with John Reese. John Reese, thank you for joining us. Uh, Brady, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Tell us about your background. Uh, it's a little bit odd. <laughs> um, I, I actually didn't go to college until I was about 45 and I, and I never, I never, uh, never finished. Actually, I took a few classes, but never finished. Um, but I was interested in, in history early on and, uh, biography. Um, as a kid, I read a lot. Uh, so somewhere around, I guess, 1984, I actually got involved with living history, uh, on the, on the revolutionary period. And, um, reason I started writing was because I started asking questions and people either uh, had answers, but couldn't tell me where they got them or, uh, didn't have answers. So luckily I lived, uh, within about 20 minutes of the David library of the American revolution. And I knew it was there. Um, in fact, I visited once, uh, earlier, even before I got in, got into, into living history. And, uh, and that place was a gold mine. Um, so I just I I recently started uh, researching the unit I was doing then because again nobody could tell me the history of the unit, 
But as I was researching, I, I just would see other bits of information that uh, had nothing to do with the unit history or interesting. So I, I just collected information and set it aside. And that um, just kind of led to all the writings I, I was able to do later. That was that, that, those were the building blocks. <laughs> what first drew your interest into this topic? Um, I, I, actually, in thinking about it, I, I was aware of, I, I was aware of Christmas, Christmas addicts as a, as a kid. Um, the first time I, I think the first time that I, I realized that there were actually uh, fight, African-Americans fighting the soldiers um, was uh, there was a stamp put out for, um, well, I think it was Salem Poor uh, in like 1770 or 1979 or so. Um, but beyond that, I think the, the I, I think I, I stumbled onto Benjamin Quarles' uh, Negro and the American Revolution, which was written in the early 60s and read that. And that covers all aspects. Um, you know the 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 the, the slaves uh, slave experience the the, uh, the blacks who joined the British Army, Continental soldiers, um, militia, uh, and then as I continued my research, I kept on running into different mentions of, of black soldiers fighting. I was my, um, my research mostly has to do with the Continental Army, even though I do I do uh, I do look at other stuff. Um, so I just collected information and then. Uh, I have a lot of friends, either both in living history and also in the in the research side, and and then a lot of those friends are are mixed in both, um, and they would send me information uh, sometimes um, on all kinds of different subjects, but including black soldiers. And uh, eventually, um, a friend of mine, Todd Braestead, long time ago, got me into LinkedIn. At that, at, when when he invited me, I I really had no idea why I was joining, but I thought, oh, what the heck, why not? Well, that that. Um, luckily about two years ago, uh, Hellion Publishing, an editor there contacted me via LinkedIn. I'd, I'd, uh, uh, posted an article I did on, on Southern black soldiers. And he contacted me and said, uh, he asked me, he said, um, would you like, we'd like you to do a book for us, uh, if you're interested. And we'd like you to do it on that subject, which was the, the Southern black, uh, the black, black soldiers and Southern continental regiments or any other subjects um, that I wanted to do it on. And I probably thought about, oh, probably less than five minutes and uh, <laughs> decided that I really wanted to do it on black soldiers. Um, and that's where the book came to be. Discuss the unique research challenges faced by a topic like this. Uh, well, everybody, when, when people are writing on, the, writing on the war, they most often don't even consider the, the color of the soldiers are writing about. Um, especially the fact that that uh, most, if not all, continental regiments were uh, were integrated, um, so they had black and white soldiers serving side by side. So you know, a lot of people think of a continental regiment and think just think of a of a of a, a conglomeration conglomeration of white of white soldiers, but occasionally in the records you do find mentions of you know Negro, mulatto, you know whatever whatever term they use. And also Indian too. I mean, I, I, there, there are quite a few Indian soldiers too. Um, the, the biggest thing is, was to figure out how I was going to personalize the history. And so in, in addition to the mentions in, in the official records or letters or even muster rolls where you can find mention of, of, uh, of, of a soldier's uh, race um, or sometimes complexion, 
uh, I wanted to, wanted to bring, it up, bring it down to a more personal level. Um, so the biggest thing for me was to try to figure out uh, how I could figure how, how I could access the, the the pension records. In other words, the 19th century, the soldiers, a lot of the soldiers um, applied for pensions uh, for their service in, in during the Revolutionary War. Uh, so I had to pull pull the black soldiers out of that mass of pensions, and I think it's probably about 15. Uh, I, I, I'd be guessing, but it's probably at least 10,000 soldiers got pensions. Um, it could be less, could be more, but it's a, it's a, it's a large number. Uh, luckily, I mean, I, I kind of, kind of did it hit or miss in the beginning. I, I tried searching on, on, uh, the different terms, mulatto, Negro, black, African. Um, but then I stumbled on, there's a, the, uh, the DAR, uh, has a nice resource. Um, I, I, I cited it in my book. And they list all the uh, soldiers of color um, that served during the war. Now, I did find out that that list isn't perfect because I, I have soldiers that aren't in that aren't in that publication. But it's it's an online publication. It's it's searchable. Um, and the nice thing is they uh, they they list they list the soldiers that had pensions and they list the pension numbers. So that's eventually what I did when I when I discovered that I just went through it page by page by page and pulled out all the soldiers with pensions and then I had to look at all those pensions and uh, so that that was the that was the biggest difficulty and the real gold mine it was a lot of work but it was still still a gold mine another another great resource is uh, uh, Leon Harris's and the Will Graves uh, online Southern Campaign Pensions website um, they've been transcribing soldiers' pensions who, uh, mostly Southern soldiers, but also soldiers who just served in the South. Uh, and that, that site is, is fully searchable. Um, and that, that's, that's where, I, where I actually started when I, when I did, did my two early articles on, on black soldiers in the Continental Army. And uh, so, that, so I found a lot of soldiers through there, but, that, but that, that, was not, that didn't include the Northern soldiers. So I, I had to go on for, and find another research. So the, the DAR resource was... Uh, was invaluable. A lot of work still, but invaluable. <laughs> How did the majority of African Americans feel regarding the revolution from an ideological perspective? Uh, that's really difficult. Um, I mean, sometimes you find mention after the war. Uh, one for the for the for the pensions. Uh, if, if the initial pension act was was uh, was um, passed. They they refined the pensions and, and there were there were uh, ensuing acts that were that were passed. Um, eventually, the the men were asked to provide. Uh, they in order to get a pension, they had to uh, prove that prove they were in need. And one one black soldier, he laid out all his belongings, and that's that's that they had to do. They basically have this list of belongings and property. He laid out all all, all his belongings in are about twenty five dollars total. And at the end. Um, he, he has a postscript and it says revolutionary uniform priceless. Now, number one, we don't know what happened to that uniform. We're probably ended up in the rag bin, but the fact that he considered it priceless was show, shows that he, he really valued his revolutionary service. Um, and then there was also during the war, there was a, uh, I think it was Prince Whipple. Um, his, uh, his captain who, owned, who was his master um, and Prince, Prince Whipple, he'd, I think he'd fought at Bunker Hill already. Uh, no, he fought in battle for Battle of Trenton. His master uh, 
was wondering why Prince was was sad, seemed sad, and and uh, and Whipple told his master that, uh, well, you know, you you're fighting for your freedom, and I have none to fight for. And at that point, his master freed him. Um, so some enslaved soldiers uh, were fighting for the freedom because they they either received it that way, or uh, as the war went on, they 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 received it uh, as a as a part of their um, a part of their military service. They either received it at the beginning of their service or received it at the end, but, but, they, but they still received it. Um, so they, it's a really complicated subject. I think some of the black soldiers were just fighting because, like the, the, the free blacks um, were fighting because it was just something that they felt they should do, just like their, their white counterparts. I mean, uh, they were in it from the first and they, and they, were, they were in it to the last. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a tricky subject, but, you know, and, and there, there were a lot of different motives. Um, some were fighting for freedom and some were fighting because they, they, they thought it was the right thing to do. How did patriot leaders justify a war of independence despite enslaving people? Well, I, I think, I think even, even leadership, there's, there's a lot of evidence that even leadership early on found that, you know, a conundrum and uh, really against what they were fighting for. Um, Early on, commanders, some commanders, not all of them, but some commanders didn't like seeing uh, blacks in the ranks. Uh, some thought they weren't, they they weren't, uh, they wouldn't make good fighting men. Um, one one commander, I think it was William Heath, said something about uh, was it was it right to ask slaves to fight to fight to fight for for our freedom? Um, but as I said, uh, eventually. Um, there were there were more there were more slaves enlisted in probably in the north as far as I can tell there there's no records but from from my experience there were more slaves in, in enlisted in the north and given their freedom than there were in the south. In fact, slaves were were really not not allowed to be enlisted in most of, most of the states in the south. Some still did serve. Um, so I think I think the, the the commanders, especially in different states, realized that that, that if they were going to accept slaves into the ranks, then those slaves are going to be going to be given freedom. Um, just like the, when, the, when the, uh, the first, first Rhode Island regiment was, um, they decided to, to, to refill it with, with just, uh, blacks and Indians. They were blacks and black and Indian slaves and they were given their freedom upon, uh, upon enlistment. So they, you know, just, just as they continued into, you know, into the, Constitutional Convention and into the 19th century, went up to our Civil War. Um, slavery was a really fraught issue, and you know some. And I and I, I know, just from, from some of the uh, veterans' actions, the, the veteran officers' reactions after the war, a lot of them were troubled by it, and um, that's probably the best answer I can get you give you. <laughs> How did African Americans first become involved in military service during the war? Well, they were. Um, I haven't done a, a, a detailed study of of which which states allowed blacks um, or African Americans in into their militia units, but in Massachusetts, uh, where where basically the the first fighting really happened, um, they they were allowed militia units, and some of some of those uh, some of those African Americans were enslaved. So. Even on the war's first day, there was at least one African American soldier who who fought at uh, Lexington Green and was wounded. 
And they took part, I think uh, one count is probably as many as 50 that day um, served. And uh, not all were involved in fighting, but the, but at least 50 were, were, were involved that day in those operations, operations between Lexington and Concord and then, and then back to Boston on the fighting retreat. Um, so again, they were involved in the first. And, and again, uh, there, there was an estimate there was probably about 150 uh, African-Americans uh, fighting at um, Bunker Hill. And those, so they, they had already enlisted, they, they were militia at, at Lexington and Concord, um, but come, come the time of Bunker Hill, most, most of those men had enlisted into the newly formed uh, Army of Observation, um, which was the New England Army, and eventually became the Continental Army. Uh, so, they, they, I mean, they, they, uh, they just showed up and fought. I mean, they, you know, they were called out with, with their militia units, and, and they fought um, on April 19, 1775. Now, eventually it was decided, I think it was June 75, that the Massachusetts Provincial Congress decided that, that no slaves would be allowed to serve. Eventually, Congress and, and uh, mostly Congress really decided that um, no, no blacks at all would allowed, allowed be, be allowed to serve. And this is after they, they already fought at, at, uh, at Lecton and Concord and at Bunker Hill. Um, eventually that was, that was brought back where any, any blacks already serving would, would be allowed to, to really reenlist if they wish to, because at that time, at that time, enlistments were only a year. And eventually just because of manpower shortages and, and sheer common sense, they, they, they just decided to let, let blacks enlist. It didn't matter whether they're serving already or not. Um, and again, you know, they, they continue to, to, to serve through the war. Again, mostly in, in, in mostly integrated regiments, with with a couple exceptions, um, and uh, you know they 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 fought to the last. What was life like for the average African American soldier? The strange thing is, it's that's a little bit hard to find to find out. Even though there are indications that they they may have been chosen as as waiters or officer servants more than whites, but and I say may. Um, because I have no indication of that. There, 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 so far, it seems as many white soldiers served as officers' servants as, as black soldiers did. Um, there's more indication that they were taken for fatigue parties, you know, uh, for, to do uh, hard labor, um, either digging fortifications. But that, was, that seemed to be only occasional, too. Um, I think once in New York, and I, I've seen once after the Saratoga battle, that they, they were pulling uh, black soldiers out of the ranks to serve serve uh, serve as on fatigue detail, but by and large, white soldiers did, did that too. I mean, they, they so it, it's. Now, I've often said that when when I give presentations, the the, the, the revolutionary period was, was not a perfect period, but um, black soldiers were pretty much uh, treated as white soldiers were. Um, unlike unlike the U.S. Uh, colored regiments uh, during the, our American Civil War in the 1860s, um, there were problems with with those regiments because they were they they didn't receive the same pay as as the as the white federal soldiers, whereas uh, or or white state U.S. soldiers, whereas during the Revolution, black soldiers received the same pay, the same clothing. Um, when the white comrades, when you know when 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 the rations were were, were bounteous, which wasn't always it was always the case but when they were they they got the same ration um when uh the army suffered for rations you know the white and black soldiers suffered together um 
I mean, I'm, I'm still digging, I'm still doing research on this subject and, and I, and I, I'm still looking for, for more indications, but it just seems that uh, they were pretty much treated as equals. And one soldier uh, writing his memoirs uh, in the early 19th century said he had been um, visited by, uh, by three, by three of his comrades, uh, four of his comrades, and uh, they were all Negro soldiers. And uh, he, he named, he names them. They, they all, most of them had from two to three years service. If, if I think, if not more, one, I think served for about a year. Uh, and at the end of his, his description of this, of this meeting, um, he said, he just said simply they were good soldiers. So I, I just think that the, that the white soldiers, you know, there, there may have been some exceptions, but I think the white soldiers just appreciated their contribution and their presence in the ranks. Um, and there seemed to have been little, little racial animus. Uh, from what I can see. Discuss some individuals or units you found to be of particular interest during your research. Um, there is, well, one interesting one, uh, I'll, I'll mention a couple of guys, but one, one interesting one was, uh, uh, he was a Connecticut soldier. Um, he actually served as a, uh, a servant to, uh, in, in a hospital. Um, but he was, Evidently, he had he had some uh, some medical experience before the war. I think he, I think he had actually um, served a uh, a doctor before the war, so he he was well known for me, for um, being able to mix up medicines. Um, unfortunately, I can't remember his name right now. But but he his uh, his son went on um, to go to Dartmouth College. In fact, uh, he was uh, raised by a white man because they they, they were afraid that that he would be. Um, somehow taken into slavery. Uh, this, this is Connecticut, but you know, Connecticut still had slavery. And he went on to serve in the government of Haiti, uh, this, this, this veteran son, um, and then died in Haiti, uh, I think about 1806. Um, I think, in fact, I think he had a hand in, in, in uh, writing the constitution for Haiti. So that's, that's, that's kind of a, that's, that's a legacy that some of these soldiers left. Um, Another interesting soldier is, uh, I think it's uh, Jacob Francis. Um, he was a New, New Jersey uh, African-American soldier. Um, he started out as an indentured servant. He wasn't a slave. Uh, he was uh, finally, he was, his indenture was sold to uh, several masters. He eventually ended up in Massachusetts, um, sold to another master, and then uh, his indenture was over at age 21. That was 1775, so he... Um, he actually joined uh, a Massachusetts regiment. Uh, he had actually ended, ended up going back to New Jersey and participated in the Battle of Trenton. And um, he just served one year. Uh, he, he served in the, in the New Jersey militia for the rest of the war, um, pretty much uh, militia services, usually, usually by the month. So whenever he was called out, he, he went and served in the militia. And then after the war, um, he, he married a woman, a local woman, and uh, she was enslaved, so he, uh, upon their marriage, he, he purchased her freedom. And they went on to have a family, and it turns out that their one son, I'm sorry, this is, there's, I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of another, uh, another soldier. Um, there's a, another, another interesting one is, uh, is a guy named John Lines and his wife Judith. Um, what I was about to say that, that their son, Died, died at the Battle of Chippewa in, in the War of 1812. The battle was in 1814. Um, Lyons stands out for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, he, he, was, he served in the Connecticut Regiment. I don't think he saw any action. 
he was he was serving late in the war, but his wife actually uh, joined him in the army uh, up at the, the Hudson Highlands uh, for about four or five months. She actually had smallpox when she was with the army, which is which is no small deal. Um, the best thing about about their uh, about their story is the fact that um, for the, in order to prove the pensions, a lot of people would. Uh, they were given diaries. They were given letters. They were given family papers. Well, Judith Lyons actually actually uh, turned in a letter that her, her husband wrote her during the war. As far as I can tell, it's the only letter that still exists that was written home by a, by a black soldier, um, and I include that in the book. So, you know, there there's and and that, and that just touches the surface of some of the amazing stories um, that the pensions. And other and other uh, resources really bring out about these about these men. When when all comes when it's all said and done though, when you're when you're reading these pensions, or reading accounts of the service, um, you could just as easily be reading about a white soldier. Uh, except the fact that um, some of these men were enslaved when they went into service. Uh, most received their freedom if they were enslaved. Most have received their freedom, even though there are occasions when when they didn't receive their freedom. But by and large, they did receive their freedom for fighting in service. Um, but the, but their experiences are by and large the same the same as the white soldiers. Uh, one one large exception was a, a guy named Fortune Stoddard, who served in the uh, Rhode Island Regiment. Um, at that time, it was a mixed regiment, the, the 1781, and he was arrested for manslaughter. Um, he was attacked by a by a white man in in, uh, in Delaware, where the regiment was stationed. Um, and he shot and killed him. So he was, he was actually tried for murder, uh, convicted of manslaughter. Um, he had to, he was branded on the thumb, which is actually a common, a common, uh, um, punishment. And he would have been let go, uh, just sent back to his regiment, but he had to pay the, pay the court costs and he didn't have any money. So he was, uh, the, the local court, the civil court, decided that uh, that they would they would sell him in order to get in order to get get back the cost of the, the court costs. So it actually sent to Washington. He eventually sent it to Congress, and um, this man he, he was he was freed. Eventually, the the, the, the court costs were paid, uh, I think, by the state of Rhode Island, and then he had to, he had to reimburse them. But he never returned to his regiment. This was in 1780. It happened in December 1781. Uh, Congress finally. Um, addressed it in, in uh, mid-1782, and he never returned to his regiment. He finally did return to Providence, Rhode Island, after the war. But but the mere fact is that um, no white soldier could have been sold to to accrue those costs, those court costs. Only a black soldier could have been sold, you know, into, into slavery. So so there were some real stark differences uh, between white and black soldiers. Um, even though they were treated, you know, pretty well. I mean, basically the same as white soldiers in the army. The British promised freedom and opportunity to enslave peoples during the war in exchange for military service. Uh, how did this divide black America at the time? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, there, there, I mean, there were, that was, that was first done in Virginia for, for the, the Ethiopian regiment under, under Lord Dunmore. Um, and, and those, those, uh, repercussions uh, the ripples were felt you know in the north and, and all over the place um that i mean i've never seen anything that 
that really ties the acceptance of blacks into the American army to that, to, to, uh, to the British doing that, but, but it, it had to have some effect. Um, now the interesting thing is that, uh, in 1775, you had Lord, Dun- Lord Dunmore's Ethiopian regiment that, that was actually disbanded in 1776. Um, and then you also had, uh, some, some blacks serving in provincial regiments, in I think it was early 1777. Actually, I think it might have been. Actually, I think it was early 1776. Um, but 76, 76 or 77, uh, General William Howe, the British Commander in Chief, uh, issued an order that that blacks would not be allowed to be served in, the, or would be would not be allowed to serve in British regular regiments or provincial regiments on the establishment. In other words, provincial regiments that were that were recognized as as provincial regiments and received their supplies from the crown. Um, so from that point on, pretty much, uh, if there were blacks in the regiment, they were they were either servants or they were musicians, but they but they they could not serve under arms. Now, blacks did serve in loyalist units that were militia or irregular units and 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 carry arms, but but not in regular regular British units or uh, regular um, loyalist units. So, but but they but they did continue to be, be accepted within the British lines. And they did. Uh, they were give, were promised their slavery upon upon uh, entering those lines, and that was that was solidified in 1779 with uh, General Clinton's uh, Phillipsburg Proclamation. Um, that same proclamation also said that any, whereas they they would accept accept any uh, rebel owned uh, slaves into their lines and give them their freedom. Um, it also said that any uh, any blacks caught under arms in an American unit would be subject. To be re-enslaved. Um, so, again, it's a really complicated, fraught subject. Uh, but it, yes, it did. It did have an effect, and I think I think it had more of an effect in the South, where the slave population was larger, where they, where, from what I've seen, they've had they had many more, or many fewer slave soldiers. In other words, many few slaves served as soldiers, uh, and and with the idea that they could receive their freedom. Um, so I think the, the, the real effect was, was in the southern colonies, and you'll see that with Cornwallis's army when, in 1780, 81, um, where there were uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of slaves um, flocked to, to Cornwallis's army as they were uh, going through, uh, especially Virginia, but also in, in, in the Carolinas, too. How does this topic in this book help us understand the revolutionary era better? Um, for a, from a larger perspective, it, uh, it, I, I hope it shows, um, that, that the, that attitudes changed from the revolution. The, the revolution, it was a war of the revolution. It, it, it wasn't just a war for American independence, but it was, it was actually a revolutionary war because there were a lot of radical ideas such, such as all men are created equal. And, and, and they tried to honor that in the breach um, but unfortunately, slavery was slavery was an institution then. Even though slavery could have ended during the war, there were a lot of indications that uh, I mean, Virginia Virginia abolished the importation of slaves. Um, there there was discussion of, of of abolishing slavery even within the Virginia legislature. And uh, 1780 was the uh, was the only wartime uh, abolition law uh, passed by Pennsylvania. Um, but there, but just almost immediately immediately post war Massachusetts 
uh, pretty much did away with slavery. Um, I think so much so that by the time of the first sentence census, there were no slaves in Massachusetts. Um, but and knowing that uh, knowing that blacks served in, in integrated regiments um, or integrated units in, in the American Army, both militia and continental, um, it, it was it was remarked on not only by American officers, some some mark, remarked on the fact uh, with uh, you know with in not very flattering light. But some American officers did did speak very highly of, of the black soldiers. But it's also remarked by by foreign officers. Um, one German officer noted that in 1777. Uh, several officers uh, no, no, noted it in later in the war. Um, and there's one return from the war, August 1778. It's it's the only return of the army that that actually lists shows the number of blacks in in a huge portion of the army of Washington's army. Uh, and at that point, there were 700, 755 uh, black soldiers. It amounted to about 4.2% of the army. Um, m- my argument is, and I'm, I don't, I, somebody sure else has surely made this argument, but my argument is that that's a relatively small percentage. Some, some regiments had, had higher percentages, up to 8% of their, of their troops were black. But it's a rel- still a relatively small percentage. Right? But I argue that that, that, that that was a radical... Um, radical statement. It was. It was. It was. It was a revolutionary move. Um, probably just as revolutionary as declaring war on 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 the British or uh, or taking up arms against the king or, or, or firing on on the you know on the British army. Um, and and including blacks in the army was a radical political statement. And it may not have been supported by all, but it but it was. But I think it was still a radical political statement um, that. Anybody who saw the army could could see it, whether they were uh, French, German, you know, English, um, or you know, homegrown American. Uh, it just it just makes you appreciate the diversity of the army. I mean, again, I I, I do mention in, mention Native Americans serving the army too, um, and and it, it it again it 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 also bring it also brings out, like you said, the conundrum of all men are created equal, but but slavery is still, you know, rampant in the, in the, in the colonies. And then of course you have the, the British inviting slaves into their lines and giving them freedom. So it just shows how complicated the situation was. Uh, and makes you wonder why some people made the decisions they did, you know, that they did during the war. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's like, like anything, it's not, it's not a black and white subject. I mean, that's excused the pun, but, it's it's shades of gray. There are, there are, there are so many factors there that that have to do with enslavement and and free slaves and or, or free blacks, and and you know why they would choose to serve in the American army and why why you know over the British army, uh, or just you know to join the British rather than rather than staying in their in their homes and and joining the army. Um, it just makes it makes just shows how how interesting that period is. John Reese. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.